Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Well, 150 chapters on the end times, session five, Luke 21. This is now our third and final of the Synoptic Gospels accounts of Jesus' sermon on the end times. So that was Matthew 24, Mark 13, and now Luke chapter 21. Now, one of the details that I left out in the uh, previous two chapters that we were looking at, that is uh, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, is the dialogue related to the temple. And uh, part of that was because I planned to do it uh, in this one and trying to, it was a little tricky, if I can be honest, trying to figure out which portions to focus on in each of the three uh, uh, chapters uh, because there was so much overlap. Um, But anyway, so here in uh, part one, one of the things that's an, an interesting detail, so Jesus was ministering around 30 A.D., uh, that's just the easiest time frame to remember. A few years before that, a few years after uh, is, is kind of the range. But let's go with around 30 A.D. And in 70 A.D., so 40 years later, the temple was physically, literally destroyed in Jerusalem. Okay? That literally happened. Okay? <coughs> now, it's interesting the way that this dialogue goes as Jesus is going to enter into a full chapter explanation, or in Matthew 24 and 25, a two-chapter explanation of the end times. But the launch pad for all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts, is the conversation around the temple. And so I want to just get get us a little introduction here. So this is a huge event. We have to understand it. A massive event for Israel and really for world history, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. All right, so Matthew 24, 1 through 2. Jesus left the temple and was walking with the disciples, and they came up to him, and they called his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's the Matthew account. Now the Mark. Jesus was leaving the temple. One of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what magnificent stones, what magnificent buildings, or massive stones, magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And then they responded, Tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? This is uh, the, now the Luke account, very similarly. Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with its gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? There's a really interesting um, series of events that's going on here between what the disciples are interested in talking about and what Jesus is interested in telling them, okay? They have just been awing over these these structures and specifically the temple. And Jesus is making it clear to them, listen, this temple that you're so enamored with, it's gonna be destroyed in 40 years. This temple is gonna be completely decimated in 40 years and it's it's gonna be a a national uh, travesty. It's gonna be a, a horrific event. And, and the disciples say, okay, well, when are the signs, when is this going to happen? And remember, they're believing there is no second coming of Messiah. There's one coming of Messiah and he's here, okay? They're believing that Jesus is about to lead the world into, you know, the millennial age. That's their perspective. So when Jesus just gets done telling them this temple's going to be destroyed, they're immediately thinking, Oh my gosh, that must be like, you know, part of the, the end time, you know, uh, timeline. They're, all the prophets, they're familiar enough with the end times to know that there are lots of stories in the prophets that haven't happened yet. And so this concept of the signs of the times, the signs that would indicate when the end was drawing near. They're asking a question about the temple 
thinking that that's related or, or not having really any, any revelation of the timeline that Jesus is really on here. And so Jesus, <clears throat> he doesn't actually speak to them at all about the temple. He transitions 100%. He, no lo- he just got done telling them the temple's going to be destroyed. And then they say, well, tell us when this is about to take place. And Jesus answers a question they don't ask. He starts to give the end time church the signs of the second coming, not signs pertaining to this temple's destruction at all. Because the temple was destroyed in 40 years later, and all the signs that we see that Jesus is is telling us about the beginning of the birth pains, none of those things happened in between the time of Jesus giving this word and the time of the destruction of the temple 40 years later. Because they weren't supposed to, because that wasn't the question that Jesus was answering. Jesus asked them, hey, we want to know the signs of the temple, and Jesus goes, I'm going to give you the signs of my second coming. Now, that's a significant point of a differentiation because if we think that Jesus is answering the question that they asked, then we're going to completely miss the fact that all of these things are about the signs of the end of the age and none of them happened in the time frame between when Jesus said these words and the destruction of the temple. So Jesus used the destruction of the temple as a launch pad to give them the narrative of the question they really should have been asking, but they didn't have the clarity to ask. Because remember, they didn't understand there were two comings of Messiah. They thought there was just one and they were looking at it right then. How does Jesus address this misunderstanding, the very first words out of his mouth after he gets done telling them that, these, that this temple is going to be destroyed, the very first thing he says is, watch out that you are not deceived. And I go back and I look at this and I see that even part of this was Jesus <coughs> trying to go, hey, when the temple's destroyed here in 40 years, don't be deceived <clears throat> thinking that that's actually a sign of my coming I'm giving you the signs of my coming here in these coming phrases and and paragraphs. Don't be deceived, for many will come in my name claiming. Now, isn't that an interesting response? When Jesus said, or when the disciples say, hey, what's the sign of the temple going to be destroyed? Jesus says, don't be deceived, many will come in my name. Just imagine like, the guys are like, no, we were talking about buildings. Now you're talking about like false Jesuses. We're not on the same page here. And you just imagine Jesus going, exactly, I want you to get on my page. I now want you to enter into the narrative that I'm trying to talk to you about. I'm trying to give you prophetic insight about the end of the age. You guys are asking about the pretty building. And I'm telling you right now that as tragic as it is and all that it means for Israel, that building isn't what we're talking about here. That building is not the conversation that we're having. I'm going to give you the signs of the end of the age and the signs of my coming. So he says, do not be deceived. There will be many false Christs. We spent a lot of time on that in the previous sessions. So I don't want to really spend any more time on that at this particular moment. You can go back and listen if you're interested. But he also says, in the midst of this, he says, do not be frightened. And he says that the, uh, that the, the end will not come right away. So he says, these things must happen first. Do not be frightened. These things will happen first, but the end will not come right away. So here he's giving us some comfort. So to the disciples then, and then also to us in the, in the generation that's going to face these things. <clears throat> he says these two phrases that I think are very important. He says, one, when these things begin to happen, and they're going to be terrifying. He says they will be terrifying. You don't be frightened. There will be grace available for you, for you to be a church that's operating in victory with soberness of thinking, even in the midst of terrifying situations. Now, listen, so long as I know God is going to be with me and help me, I can handle anything. It's those situations where I'm fearful that is the Lord going to meet me in this? Have I made the right decision? Jesus says, listen, when you enter into these times, there will be, they will be tremendously difficult, but do not be frightened. Part of that is the promise. Jesus can't tell us to do something and then not empower us to do it. So the very fact that he says, don't be frightened, means there will be non-frightened available. There will be a grace to not be frightened in the midst of that. And part of that is the, the church pressing into the spirit, knowing the Lord in those days, But I want to help all of us, especially those that feel like whenever you think about the end times, you get a little bit fearful. 
do not be frightened. These are the pastoral words of Jesus to you. Do not be frightened. There will be grace made available to you that you will not be operating in a spirit of fear, though the circumstances are very trying. Next he says, the end will not come right away. That doesn't seem comforting. That seems really challenging. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm in charge of the timeline. And when these things begin to unfold, the end is coming, but it will not come right away. I will see you through it. I will help you. The end is still yet to come. When these difficulties begin to happen, you will be a part of it. You will not have to be frightened, and you also don't have to worry that these things continue to happen. I'm the one that's in charge of the timeline. These time markers, you can now note that you're now in the time where it's close, but it's not yet. That will be a very important indicator. When we look around and we see the uptick of the signs of the times in a significantly dramatic way for us to go, the time is near, the longing that's in our heart for the return of Jesus is coming near. It's not yet, but we're finally in the season of it. Okay, now we've looked at the signs of the times in the past couple of sessions, but there are a few added details in Luke's account And I want to look at, I want to kind of highlight those. Um, We'll look at some of the ones that we've looked at a little bit. But I want to highlight the ones uh, that are uh, unique to Luke's account because there's quite a few of them actually. First is, Luke uses the term when you hear of wars. Well, Matthew and Mark also include the term rumors of wars. Now, I think this is, it's interesting because this idea of a rumor of a war or hearing of a war. So it's not just there is a war that you can identify, but you're hearing whispers of it. You're hearing about it. You're, it's not touching you, but you're hearing of it. That causes tremendous anxiety, hearing of wars. And there's going to be a generation that is going to be hearing of wars, rumors of wars as a constant normative, and that shouldn't be normal to the human experience. And when that's normal, that's going to create such an underlying anxiety. Now, remember, we're really grateful that Jesus just got done saying, you don't need to be fearful. It's good that he tells us that because that means there's power in those words. Just hear me. He can't ask you to do something and then not empower you to do it. That's just not the character of God. So if he says, don't be frightened, that's a promise of God power for clarity, a, a, a promise of sober thinking, a promise of, of, of joy or peace in your heart in the midst of turmoil in a generation that is going to be filled with anxiety because the generation will not have that peace. The reason Jesus tells us don't be frightened is because everyone else is going to be frightened. And one of the reasons for that is the constant turbulence of hearing about another war, the anxiety of rumors of wars and, and, and hearing of wars. Next, uprisings. Uh, here in, uh, in Luke's account, the word uprisings. Other translations say revolutions. Okay? Well, this is different than the, the nation against nation, uh, which is ethnic group against ethnic group, or the kingdom against kingdom. This is specifically related to civil unrest. Uprisings is related to uprisings within a nation from those that are in that nation. And so this is now talking about like civil unrest, revolts, revolutions, those kinds of things happening within a nation. Well, when there's a significant uptick of this, there's always been this. There's always been a war here, a war there. There's always been an unrest or a revolution here or a revolution there. But not so much that we could call it a sign that Jesus is about to come back. As these things begin to uptick, That is yet another area of significant cause of social anxiety. As there's people that's like, man, you just don't know. I just heard another nation. There's uprisings and and civil war in that nation over there. There's going to be such a a concern that it would happen here, it would happen there. It's going to be a really significant part of this. And part of the reason that that's going to be happening is because People are going to be so distraught with life from every angle. 
and they're going to be looking for government to fix their problems. And where historically government has been somewhat successful at that in many ways, in many social, in many uh, societies, it's going to become less and less able to fix the problems. And there's going to be uprisings in order to see, well, we'll put a new person in charge. We'll get a new uh, group in charge. That'll fix the problem. It won't. But this is part of the, just the anxiety that's going to be uh, growing across the nations. <clears throat> All right. Top of page three, national conflicts. We covered that uh, in uh, the last couple, the nation against nation, ethnos against ethnos. Um, and then national conflicts, kingdom against kingdom, we, we covered those. Okay, I want to look at great earthquakes because the language is great earthquakes. And it says great earthquakes in various places. <clears throat> now, the reason that the, the word great and various are the two words we, we want to look at and we want to think about for a second. There's always been earthquakes. There's always been, at least you know, on occasion, a big, big earthquake. Something that you would call a great one. This, for it to equal a sign of the time, has to be significantly more frequent of these great earthquakes. So let's call them nines on the Richter scale, okay? Those are rare earthquakes. There's got to be more of them and then various places. Traditionally, earthquakes happen in specific areas where there's fault lines that we know, there's pattern, there's history. Some things are even a bit predictable that there'll be earthquakes in certain places at certain times. That's not what we're talking about. This is in various places. This is earthquakes where there shouldn't be earthquakes. Great ones of a greater of a of an uptick of an increase, and in places they should not be. That's going to be terrifying because cities, especially in modern day, are built with one of the thought processes being: Do we have earthquakes here? No. Okay. Well, then we build buildings a certain way. Do we have earthquakes here? Yes. Well, then we build earthquakes a very different way, or build buildings a very different way in order to prepare for those earthquakes. <laughs> when earthquakes begin to happen where they shouldn't be happening, it's going to cause great problems to cities because those buildings don't hold up like buildings that were built uh, to withstand the impact of earthquakes. So there's going to be some significant problems caused by that. And then dams that are you know, holding up rivers and lakes, all sorts of problems. Famines. Currently, if there weren't an increase of famines from like God doing something, if there weren't an increase of that, which there will be, but if there weren't, we already have a baseline problem already right now. That's the following. The earth's population is growing, but its agricultural capacities are diminishing. People go up, food supply go down. For those two things to be happening, even if there wasn't a crazy drought that took out a bunch of grain, we're already on a uh, trajectory for famine because of the increased population but the diminishing food supply. It's like that is already bad. It's already a, a recipe for disaster. And yet the Lord will orchestrate significant things that there will be droughts that cause famines and other things. You know, it's not just drought, it's supply chain issues. You can have a, a famine if you just have a supply chain issue in our current model of the way that we get food out, not just in America, but globally. There's lots and lots of places that don't have a food supply, but they've got a good supply chain, so they're okay. But what if the supply chain goes down? Ships, Trucks, gas prices. I mean, there's a lot of impact points that can really touch the subject of famine. Increase of pestilences. Pestilences are commonly identified as plagues, diseases, epidemics, but it can even include pests, like things that, you know, a, a locust plague that is impacting things and uh, things of that nature. Um, those are all really bad. And Jesus, in his Luke 21 account, tells us that there will be a significant uptick of pestilences to the point where we would be able to identify them as a sign of the times. Now look at a couple more here. Fearful events and great signs from heaven. Both of those uh, were in the list. In fact, I actually want to go back because I want to read the Luke 21 passage here. So it's Luke 21, 9 through 11 on page 2. 
When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places. And actually, I think that word great is a carryover for each one of those. I don't think it's just great earthquakes. I think it's great earthquakes, great famines, and great pestilences. And fearful events and great signs from heaven. Now, I want to give us a couple of examples of some biblical fearful events and biblical signs in the heavens or uh, great signs in the heavens that don't take place during the period of the birth pains. We know because we're told exactly when they take place. They take place during the great tribulation. But what we can do is we can look at the events of the great tribulation and we can recognize a pattern of like kind but lesser degree occurring during the period of the birth pains. Jesus gave us the whole analogy of the birth pains. Well, the, the pains of labor that are during the birth pains are of a like kind to the pushing labor pains that happen when it's time to push the baby out in those final minutes. But my goodness, they're of a lesser degree of intensity and pain and all of that. Well, that's the whole thought process of Jesus giving us the period of the birth pains that we would look at these things and we go, the things that are going to occur during the period of the birth pains, which is going to last, again, probably a couple decades is my assumption based off of even the whole labor thought process. Push the baby out. Hopefully that only lasts 20, 30 minutes an hour, hopefully. Labor pains last maybe a day. Leading up to it, you know, that kind of a concept, okay? So if it does last a couple of decades, it's good that the pains are not as intense. Otherwise, we wouldn't make it. But for the period of the birth pains, they will be real, they will be intense, but they will be of a lesser degree, but of a like kind to the things that we see during the Great Tribulation. So I think, because we don't have any that I'm aware of, We don't have any great examples, and there probably are some in the Bible that just weren't jumping out to me. But while we don't have any that I'm aware of, great examples of what is a fearful event that's going to happen during the period of the birth pains, we do have some fearful events that we can see that happen during the Great Tribulation. So by looking at that fearful event, we can get kind of an idea of what are the kinds of things, because it'd be like that, but it'd be lesser, okay? And then similarly, great signs from heaven. I don't know that I can see any that we've got clear examples of great signs from heaven that will be occurring during the couple of decades of the birth pains. But we do have some that are overt that we see during the three and a half year great tribulation. So let's just look at one and one from the great tribulation and then kind of go back and think, man, what would a lesser degree of that kind of a thing look like and feel like? Because when Jesus warned during the period of the birth pangs, let me tell you two of the signs. One of them is fearful events. That is bad. And second, great signs from heaven will appear during the birth pains. What, what kind of things are we even looking for. Well, let's look at Revelation 9, 1 through 2, one of the fearful events that occurs during the Great Tribulation. Am I making sense here? We're we're making a comparison between something that we know it's going to happen, and it's going to happen not during the birth pains. But by looking at it, we can go, okay, something like that, but not quite as freaky. Okay? All right. Revelation 9, 1 through 2. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss, and when he opened the abyss, he opened hell on planet Earth, physically opened a chasm, a gateway, a door from hell to planet Earth. Smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. That is a fearful event. I don't know that it gets much more fearful than that. Well, what is that divided by 10 or 100? I still don't want anything to do with it, but this is to kind of get us thinking. When Jesus says fearful events, we've already got documented some fearful events. What would this kind of thing at a lesser degree? I don't know. The appearing of demonic presences in some way. Another fearful event is Revelation 12. 
when all the principalities are kicked out of the, uh, the heavens and they're cast to earth and now they're on the earth causing havoc. That's another fearful event. Well, what lesser versions of these kinds of things could we potentially be seeing during the period of the, the birth pains? That's going to be really terrifying. Well, great signs from heaven. Again, let's look at one that happens during the Great Tribulation. Revelation 6.14, the sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That is a great sign from heaven. Like God sticks his hands right through the sky, the clouds, kind of breaks a seal there, and then gets both hands and starts rolling it back like a scroll. And now you can tell by the Revelation 6 account, the people on earth can literally see into heaven. They see God on his throne. That is a great sign from heaven in the heavens. Now, we know that one literally takes place in Revelation chapter 6 during the period of the Great Tribulation. But Jesus told us there's going to be great signs from heaven during the period of the birth pains. So what, is, what does that look like? What, what other things? You know, you, another great sign uh, during the Great Tribulation period is those three angels are released to go declare messages. I think it's uh, Revelation chapter something eluding me is it 14 i think it's 14 anyway it's in there you go look oh man i'm not on my head game tonight uh so yeah revelation chapter 14 i believe these these angels are uh they go and they preach the gospel in the earth one of them does they proclaim messages well they're in the sky and they're visible to man and they're heard by people that's a sign in the sky. That's a sign in the heavens. But we're, we're going to see signs in the heavens during the period of the birth pains. That's a, that's a new idea. All right, let's keep moving. Handling the persecution. Persecutions get really intense. During this, uh, this next upcoming season, um, Nathaniel, would you mind grabbing me one more water? I know I'm going to need it here. Thank you, sir. Um. All right, handling the, per the persecution that occurs during the period of the birth pains. And Jesus even says this. He says, but before all this, that's an interesting timeline because we were just told about birth pain uh, realities that we're to be looking out for. And Jesus says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You will be brought before kings and governors. And on account of my name, rather on account of my name, and so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom so that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict you. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives, friends, they'll put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not one hair on your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Now it's interesting that Jesus just gets, got, uh, he started this off with, but before all this. So something like the early side of the birth pain season, Something along those. That's when the great persecution begins. Oh, man, don't we wish that great persecution would like wait, you know, a year or five or ten into it? Jesus says, no, it's actually the kickoff. The kickoff is going to be great persecution is going to come against the church. And when it does, here are a bunch of details that I want you to be aware of. One, this is a, uh, this is a powerful, interesting thought process. He says, You'll be handed over to synagogues. Now, that's an interesting statement because it means that at the timing of these events, in the period of the birth pains, so in the, the generation that the Lord returns, in the decades before Jesus appears in the sky, the Jewish synagogue system, at least in Israel, will be operating with a significant level of authority. 
Not just that they're in Israel, not just that they're you know, part of the religious structure, but they're just going to be a significant enough authority resting on the synagogue system that it's going to make sense to hand people over to the synagogues to be dealt with and to be punished. Well, for them to deal with anybody and punish anybody in any significant way means they've got some authority that there must be some sort of like, there's going to be an uptick in the way that the Jewish synagogue system within Israel is perceived and is operating. Because right now, the level of authority that is occurring is not what we're reading here. It's going to increase. But it's not just the synagogue system. This is another interesting detail. It says, you'll be brought before kings and governors. Now, I just want, now this is before the Antichrist. We've got a concept of when the Antichrist is in charge and he's got his whole governmental system across the earth, we've got a concept for when Christians are found to be Christians, they're going to have to give an account to somebody in government. But this isn't that season. This is the season that's the beginning of the birth pains. This is still the beginning of the birth pains. So again, I'm just calling it two decades out from Christ because I need a timeline. Okay, my... If two decades are like, it's 17 years or it's 26 years, I don't know the number. I'm just trying to come up with something so I don't have to keep saying it, okay? So, so about 20 years out, before Jesus comes, it says this. You'll be brought before kings and governors on account of my name. Now, what version, I mean, can you imagine tomorrow Christians doing something and whatever it is, it was such a hullabaloo, they were brought before kings and governors. That's impossible. No king or governor would care. Right now, the way things look, this doesn't make any sense. Because right now in our current structure, if Christians do Christian stuff, the world doesn't even really care. Like nobody's paying attention. But a time is coming when Christians will do Christian stuff, and they will be brought before kings and governors, and Jesus says, in order that you would bear testimony to me in front of them. It's not a one-off situation. Jesus doesn't say, and this will happen three times to three selected individuals. He's trying to give a normal pattern of the way things are going to go for the church. So at a very least, it would be expected that lots and lots of church leaders across the earth, notice he says kings and governors. This is now talking way beyond localized Israel. Kings and governors. This is a global reality. So Christians are going to be brought before kings and governors to bear testimony about Jesus, but it's in relationship to the persecution. It's not in relationship to like they got on Daystar and now everybody thinks they're cool and now they get to go and visit a king and a king like has an interview with them. They're in trouble when they're in front of the king. This isn't a good thing for them. This is a bad thing. Well, what is going to shift that's going to cause the kings and the governors of the earth to even care? about what Christians think or are doing or are saying, things are going to be shifting. Part of that is the authority that's going to start resting on the church that currently the church isn't operating in. When the church starts to get baptized in, uh, in John chapter 14, verse 12, everyone who believes in me will do these things and even greater things than these because I go to the Father. When the church begins to operate in that sort of authority and power, it will disrupt systems. The only reason we're going to even show up on anybody's radar from a governmental perspective pre-Antichrist system is because things are going to start shaking. So it's actually, this is good news, because it means there's going to be something disruptive going on, revival, power, authority, those kinds of things. All right, you will bear testimony. I just said that. All right, don't worry about what to say. I will give you the words to say. He says, you will confound, or, or uh, uh, forget exact language. What was the word he uses? He says, uh, says, I will give you wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Okay, now, I want to share just a brief story uh, because 
I've gotten to experience this at the smallest level, okay? So if here we're talking it's a level 10, I've experienced this at a level 1, okay? And it is remarkable when this happens. It's, it is a powerful gift of God that is very much outside of you. Like if you raise somebody from the dead, you could hardly take credit for that. It's like God did it. I was there. I prayed. They raised from the dead. What do you do? Okay. I, I was in a, a couple of situations when I was a missionary in Africa where I was in moments where I was in real trouble. And I did not know what I was going to do. I did not know what I was going to say. There was no rehearsal. There was no preparing for the moment. The moment occurred. And now I'm in the moment, and I don't know what I'm going to do. In one particular situation, I was in a taxi, and I was being taken out to a very far place out in the middle of the desert by some very unsavory people. And all of a sudden, the taxi driver stops in the middle of the desert, and is kicking me out of the car because I don't have money to pay him. And I am terrified, if I can be totally honest. He's opened the door, he stopped the car, opened the door. I've not seen a light or a building for 45 minutes. It's just been sand dunes. He opens the door, and he starts yelling at me. I'm sure it's get out of my car. And I don't know what I'm about to say, but all of a sudden, as I'm looking at him, I watch my finger fly past my face like it belonged to somebody else. I said, in the name of Jesus, you get back in that car. I'm not giving you one dime, and we're going wherever we were going before. And as soon as I said it, it power came off my finger. I don't know how else to describe it. I didn't see it, but I saw the impact of it. It's like lightning came off my finger and struck this guy's countenance. And as soon as it did, he went from angry to he got back in the car, and he started driving. And he drove silently like, like God hijacked him. And I sat there in the back seat going, those were not my, I was not thinking those words. I don't know that I would be bold to say such things. Something came out of my mouth, and I, I had a living revelation of this Bible verse. And I knew that I was having it. I was like, I am in that moment, in this moment right now. This is a moment where Jesus gave me words that could not be contradicted. The guy didn't even speak English. He didn't even know what I was saying. <clears throat> And yet there was authority on it and without him being fearful of me or whatever, because he could have still just easily been like, hey, that's nice. Get out of my car. Something happened. Something occurred. The Lord is going to give those sorts of moments, those sorts of anointed words that don't need to be thought up ahead of time. Okay. Wrath against Jerusalem. Jerusalem's enemies are going to surround uh, Israel. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you a very interesting if you're not familiar with it, a very interesting point of comparison. I've made, I don't know, maybe three or four different uh, uh, comparisons to Deuteronomy chapter 28. The things that are occurring now, Jesus is the one speaking here. So Jesus, the living word, he understands Deuteronomy 28. And if you don't know Deuteronomy 28, uh, it's a passage that is both very near and dear and also terrifying to Israel because it more or less says, if you walk with God, things will go so well for you. If you turn away from God, God promises, I will beat the snot out of you. I will cause you every problem, and don't blame your enemies. It's me, God, doing it to you. Walk with me, crazy blessings. Walk against me, and I will be against you, and I will do the worst things to you. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is clear and painful. Jesus is quoting multiple phrases directly out of Deuteronomy chapter 28 as he's describing what's going to happen to Jerusalem as a result of them turning away uh, from the Lord. And again, these things did not happen in 70 AD. These things are going to be happening uh, here in the end time drama. Okay, Luke 21, 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Deuteronomy 28, 25. The Lord <clears throat> will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them in one direction, but flee from them in seven. The next verse in Luke 21, we get the flee word. Luke 21, 21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out. Let those who are in the country not enter the city. This is, these are direct, like uh, in some cases, phrases from and others uh, uh, allusion to 
uh, what was communicated in Deuteronomy 28, it gets really clear here in this next passage. Deut- uh, Luke 21, 22 through 24. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. Now that, he's talking about 28. He's talking about Deuteronomy 28. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now let me read you the Deuteronomy 28 passage. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. You'll be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. That is a, a specific reality that we know is going to be uh, ha- is going to happen under the leadership of the Antichrist in the uh, in the final generation. There's going to be a scattering of the Jews across the earth in a far greater way than is even the case now. Right now, there's efforts for Jews to make Aliyah back to Israel. Well, there's going to be a an undoing of that under the leadership of the Antichrist and the whole attack that's going to occur in Jerusalem. Jesus just got done saying, when Jerusalem is attacked... When you see Jerusalem being attacked, and that's the whole abomination, causes desolation, that's the, the setting up of the idol, that's uh, the ten nations that are in alignment with Antichrist surrounding Israel, surrounding Jerusalem specifically. When that happens, Jesus says, flee and flee everywhere. And then they're gonna, Jews are going to be on the run for the next three and a half years. It's going to be really a trying time. Uh, signs during the Great Tribulation. Look at this. Here's more Deuteronomy 28 quotes. Luke 21, 25 through 26, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars on earth. The nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what's coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Look at Deuteronomy 28. This is, this is the Lord back in Deuteronomy 28 saying what's going to happen to the nation of Israel if Israel doesn't walk with him. The sights you will see will drive you mad. Deuteronomy 28.34. Deuteronomy 28.66-67. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life because of the terror that will fill your hearts and the sights that your eyes will see. These are really intense words. Thankfully, Jesus ends on a bright note. And he says... I want to spare you of all this. Be careful. This is Luke 21, page 7. Luke 21, 34 through 36. Be careful. Or your hearts will be weighed down. We've talked about this before, but it's such an important detail that we would note that Jesus' admonition for those that are going to make it through the end times, those that are going to be alive in that generation, and those that are going to survive, he says, you need to be careful. He defines what carefulness is in a moment. You need to be careful or I promise you your fate. Things will be so intense, so anxious, so painful, so hard that I guarantee you, this is Jesus. This is not like him you know, putting a word curse on you. This is him telling you the facts of life. He says, I promise you, your hearts will be weighed down by it. Your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. If Jesus had not begun with, be careful or, we would be in such a dark spot at this point. Because he just promised what's going to happen as the rule of the day. He says, however, be careful. For it will come upon all those who live upon the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch. This is the solution. Be always on the watch and pray. By doing this, by being always on the watch and pray, you may be able to escape all that's about to happen, and you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. The solution that Jesus gives, and the one that we constantly push here, is watch and pray. Watchfulness includes study and attentiveness, 
prayerfulness. It's not a pray every now and then. It's not have a personal prayer life. He is giving the admonition to the believers that they need to be a praying people. They need to be a watching people. I'll just say this. When it comes to the, the concept of watching or studying, or it comes to the concept of praying, we get so much more accomplished when we do it together than when we go it alone. There is so much more revelation available in study when we do it together than when we do it by ourselves. In fact, you get isolated in study, you wind up weird, and your doctrine's bad. Same thing with prayer. You wind up like anemic. It's not a healthy thing. We need to be a people that pray together. And Jesus' admonition for the church of how we'll survive is we need to be watchful and prayerful, and that will help us. Yeah, so the question is... Uh, not only about Deuteronomy 28, but any passages where it would speak of the Lord's pleasure to cause problems, pain, destruction, because uh, it says that uh, just as that please the Lord to prosper, it will please the Lord to do these things. So how does that work uh, in, in the heart of God? So, you know, the, the, the real difficult thing that we have got to remember, and we don't mostly approach the thought process of God from this standpoint is that God is a God of justice. And justice is good. I want us to think about this for a second. Uh, I, was, I was actually having a great conversation um, with, uh, with my six-year-old last night or this morning. Um, and the, the sisters they, and him, they had, they had done paper, rock, scissors to see who got the big room in the fort and who got the little room in the fort. Okay, and he lost paper, rock, scissors, and so he's got the janky little room in the fort that they built, and he's really upset about it. And he said, he asked the question. He said, he said, uh, well, why do I have to do that? I said, well, because you lost paper, rock, scissors. He says, well, can't we do it again? And I said, no, that's not how that works. And, and he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what if your sister had won or had lost paper, rock, scissors, and you got the big room? How would you feel about it if we just did paper, rock, scissors again and you now lost the big room? And he's like, I wouldn't like that at all. I go, I go, it's not justice. I go, it's not justice to just do it over again, just to do whatever you want. God feels very much this way about what is right and about what is wrong. And actually, we celebrate him for that. The lost world celebrates when they get things that they are due, that they, that they are rightfully due. The problem is that rightful do-ness works on two sides of the equation, what we are rightfully due in the positive and what we are rightfully due in the negative. And the truth is, if the negative justice isn't met, God isn't just. And God created this system out of him being a just God who is love. It is actually injustice. It is wrong. It, it would be grounds for accusation against God if God did not act upon the things that he has put into place and specifically the equalizing of the scales related to the subject of justice. Where there is sin, there must be death. Where there is injustice, those things must be made right. And so it is a delight in his heart to make right what it is he put into place. But also think about this. This is how we know he's kind and that he's not out to get us. He told us what he was going to do in the Bible. It says it. So it's not like there's this secret angry side of God that we don't get to know about. He said, no, I delight in justice. The, the verses that we think about where he delights in the justice for, for uh, the orphan or justice for the widow, it's the same God that's delighting in those points of justice. It's the same God. It's justice. And he's told us in this word, like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. If you do this, here's the consequences. Now he's like, don't, I'm not going to be a liar. At the end of this thing, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. And I will delight in it because it is right. It is right. He says, I delight to promote you and give you opportunity to turn to me. I delight in bringing about justice so that all things will be right, that everyone would be able to look at me and go, he dealt with this with perfect justice. And that's actually love. It would be unloving if 
I was constantly showing favoritism to one of my kids when they're getting into trouble and I never do anything. And to the other one, I always punish them. That wouldn't be right. It's, it's justice to punish injustice. And so it's right and it's good. And so it, the word, whatever gleeful word you want to use, delight, pleased, pleasure, it is God who set the rule system in place. And he did it because he was good. And he was looking out for everybody's good. And it is his delight to act upon that justice system that he's put into place, even when it costs people their lives. Great. Luke 21, uh, 30, I'm going to start with the verse before it, 34 through 36. Um, be careful, your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, anxieties of life, and this day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. So Jesus has just set one side of the equation. The first side of the equation is, you will, this will spring on you unexpectedly like a trap. That's one thing that can happen to you. Then he describes the second thing that can happen to you. He says, for it will come upon all the face, I'm sorry, it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all, where did I lose it there? Be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. This is the other side of the equation. He's saying, look, there's two versions of this. The subject is, are you going to get caught in, the, everybody's going to endure this. He just said it. He just made it clear. See, one of the things that's important as we read the word, the word interprets itself. We never get to pick sides. It's never like, well, I believe in these verses, but I don't believe in those verses. That's absurdity. We believe in all the verses. And in this passage, he tells us the whole storyline. First of all, he says, it will come, these events, it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. All. All will experience this. Now, all will experience it either as a trap or you can pray that you be able to escape the details of this situation, all of them. So here's how, what this looks like. If you are prepared and prayerful, then the way that this scenario looks for you will look and feel ex the, the exact opposite as it does for those that aren't watchful and prayerful. It will close on them like a trap or you'll be able to escape. So what does that escape look like? Well, if you know the events that are about to come, if you're prayerful, you're going to be hearing the voice of the Lord. He's going to be helping you endure. He's going to, there's going to be people that because they didn't know their Bible, they're going to straight up walk right into a seal judgment. They're going to straight walk right into one of those things. But if you're watchful and prayerful, not only did you know it was coming because you were watchful, but prayerful, then the Lord will even help you to know how to navigate that. It will not be a trap to you. You'll actually know how to navigate. The voice of the Lord will be loud, his clarity, his helpfulness. So the navigation of how he helps us with all that is just going to be beautiful. And I love that because I overheard Ryan's comment about the Joel passage related to who knows. The Lord may relent was actually referring to corporate responses to prayer in relationship to the time of judgment. When the people of God will gather together and pray, when they're watchful, that it's a time that we need to be really paying attention, and then they'll gather and pray, the Lord brings grace. He pours out in a way that he doesn't pour out on the other people. But everybody's alive on the planet during the same judgment. But there's two ways that people are going to experience that, either as a trap or by his grace and his help through all the circumstances. And so, you know, you can... As a, as a believer, we have the choice to have God's help in all the areas of our life. Or if we choose to stick our fingers in our ear and go, la, 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 I'm not listening, we can experience all those same exact circumstances without his help. That's up to us. It's about engagement. And he says, the way that you engage me is you watch and pray. Excellent question. Great question. So uh, I'm going to interpret the question, see if I'm okay on my interpretation. Uh, so much of what we're reading <coughs> in this uh, passage, not all of it, but so much of it, is directed at Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding area. Uh, and it's there are things that are specific. I mean, the temple, the temple is only in one place. It's Judea is a very specific piece of geography. If you're in Judea, flee. I mean, there's some those kind of language. So how do we as Gentiles that live on the other side of the planet, living in America, and Andy's point was and, uh, America is not listed in the Bible anywhere that we can identify. 
How are we supposed to take these? Same concept as earlier related to the idea of like kind, uh, but lesser degree. Um, the, the scenario really that Jesus just painted for the people in Jerusalem is a very similar scenario that is going to unfold not quite with the level of drama and not quite with the chokehold that it's got on Jerusalem, but as the Mark of the Beast system is applied and implemented across the earth, people in all those areas are going to be experiencing a similar kind of situation as what they were experiencing when the Antichrist sets himself up in that Jewish temple in Jerusalem, that, that whole scenario. And so like kind, lesser degree kind of a, a sort of a situation. So the increase of the difficulties, the increase of the persecution, the increase of betrayal, you know, we didn't really get to it. I put it in the notes, but I think one of the greatest pains, maybe the most significant pain that the church is going to experience is actually betrayal. I think when it comes to the end time drama, uh, you know, if, if bad things are happening around us, we're going to have peace of God, at least is available to us. If, even if we lose our own life, you know, we know the promise of the resurrection. Even as we lose a friend, as painful as that is, they're kind of laughing at us now because they're up there, we're stuck here. But the, the process of betrayal is one that Jesus makes really clear, and he, he goes through all the relational dynamics and I think that that subject of betrayal is going to be such a massive one that I just, I'm not sure I can think of something more painful than somebody we've been running with. That's, that's not a them. It's an us. It's Judas. It's the 12th guy. He's been there all the time. It's like, well, if it was good enough for me to have a Judas, I'll make sure all of you guys get to experience similar situations at the end so that you can really know the ache that was in my heart that day. And there's going to be betrayal of children to parents, parents, children, friends, family, neighborhood, all that kind of stuff. So, so there's a ton of lessons. We, we take all of these lessons, even the ones that are specific to Jerusalem, even the ones that are specific to, you know, to, uh, to Jerusalem, to the church in Jerusalem, to all the, all the different details. We take that, those concepts and we're able to see exactly the concept, but then we, we like kind lesser degree throughout the earth. And uh, I will say that most of the passages that are uh, in the end times are not specific only to Jerusalem. They, a lot of them are global. I mean, we looked at uh, uh, Isaiah 24 a couple weeks ago. It's such a global judgment passage. Most of the end time passages are not uh, hyper-focused on Jerusalem. They're, they're, they're the global story. And, and so the reason I bring that up is because we don't need to look at the a few passages that are only speaking about this little group of people in this place and go, well, you know, what do we do with that? Instead, we look at the whole narrative and they go, okay, the whole narrative applies to all of us, which in this passage where Jesus got done talking about Jerusalem, Judea, then he ends with, oh, don't forget, all this is going to happen to everybody on the whole planet. So it is a whole planet sort of a scenario. So uh, great question. Okay, so... Uh, the nations surround uh, Israel, uh, that's, that's unfortunately a very common end-time theme. I mean, it's one of the more common end-time themes, uh, is the nations surrounding Israel at the end of the age. And the nations at the very beginning of that are going to be the ten nations that are in league with the Antichrist that we read about in uh, Daniel, we read about in Revelation. Um, those 10 nations are going to surround Israel in order to help force the Antichrist in uh, to Jerusalem for him to be able to set himself up in the temple. The question that uh, Chrissy's group was asking, and correct me if I'm wrong, was, okay, so at that point then, Israel is still in rebellion against God, right? Yes. At what point does Israel uh, stop being in rebellion against God? Well, as a whole, Israel doesn't make that transition until Jesus parts the Mount of Olives and comes into Jerusalem, we read that in Zechariah, that he parts the Mount of Olives and he walks into Jerusalem as the triumphant leader in order to come against all the nations. 100% of the nations of the earth have now gathered in, uh, in uh, a big army in order to fight not only uh, Israel, but to fight Jesus. It's at that point that they say, Blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord and that they receive Jesus as their Messiah in that whole process there. 
because uh, it says that Jesus isn't actually even allowed to come back into Jerusalem until they do that. And so, uh, so that's, but that's after the three and a half years of trial. Now, I don't want to get into it, but there will be Jews getting saved in some number and in some consistent, uh, uh, significant numbers at certain points in the uh, end time drama. Throughout the storyline, there will be Jews giving their lives to Jesus. But as far as as a nation and, and the holistic, you know, okay, now, you know, when is all of Israel going to be saved kind of a thing? That's actually when Jesus is marching into Jerusalem in that uh, direct timeline, which is at the end of the Great Tribulation. Um, so, yeah, great, great question. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.